section nineteen of the romance of the romanovs this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. recording by avai in september two thousand twenty the romance of the romanovs by joseph martin mccabe chapter sixteen the last of the romanovs the crowning act of the drama of the Romanovs has a peculiar irony. One could well imagine a Romanov of the 17th or 18th century making a ferocious struggle against the democratic forces which now threatened the autocracy. For those older monarchs, power had been a means of obtaining wealth, of enlarging their individual pleasures to royal or imperial proportions, and they would use all the machinery of despotism to maintain their splendid privileges. But in proportion as the democratic menace grew in the nineteenth century, the voluptuous selfishness of the Russian monarchs diminished. The serious, almost ascetic standard set up by Alexander I lingered in the imperial palaces, and it seemed that the less personal gratification the monarch received from his autocratic power, the more resolutely he fought to retain it. The last of the Romanovs was one of the most sober and industrious of his line, and his reign was disgraced by a more bloody and cruel coercion than had reddened the reign of any of his predecessors. Nicholas II, son of Alexander III and Princess Dagmar of Denmark, is one of those tantalizing personalities whom one knows to be in themselves far removed from subtlety yet whom one cannot honestly pretend to understand. He came to the throne an unknown man, eagerly scrutinized by every moderate reformer in Russia. He departs from it with his personality and actions still largely enveloped in mystery. This obscurity is, as I said, not due to any depth or subtlety in the mind of the Tsar. It is due rather to the weakness of his character. Two sets of influences surrounded him, bending to their will his frail personality, and substituting their cupidity or prejudice for his native impulses. The inner circle was that of his family, in which his mother and uncles were the leading and most mischievous figures. The outer circle was the ring of adventurers or reactionaries, whom the strength of his older relatives or the fibrility of his own character invested successively with ministerial power. Beyond these, again, were the religious charlatans who at times preyed upon the superstition of the Tsar and Tsarina, the great body of ecclesiastical and other officers whose interest it was to maintain the existing system, and the doctrinaire conservatives, who, with purblind eyes, insisted upon the isolation of russia from the progress of the world through this maze of intrigue and influence it is difficult to reach the personality of nicholas the second with confidence and the fierce partisanship of writers on both sides in the great struggle increases our task of disentangling the precise parts in the final catastrophe it seems however to be an error to regard the last of the romanovs as a mere puppet a tearful and hysterical implement of the reactionary influences which surrounded him nicholas had not the robustness of his father whose dwarf intellect had been lodged in the frame of a russian giant but he was stronger than many literary portraits of him suggest to us 
His education had been severely controlled. Distinguished experts had taught him those branches of culture, law, history, and political economy, which were deemed necessary in a successor of Alexander III, and a rigorous physical training had braced the comparative feebleness of his person. He swam and rowed with skill, he played tennis and hunted, and throughout his reign he loved a long walk, often of ten or fifteen miles, and would at times burden himself with all the equipment of a common infantryman. It is said that the sabre-cut on the head which he received from a Japanese fanatic in 1891, when he made a tour of the empire and further Asia, injured his brain and led to nervous instability. But this is one of the many statements of revolutionary writers which have not been checked by sober criticism. He came to the throne in 1894, a cool, self-possessed, carefully educated young man of twenty-six, and some hope was excited in the breast of moderate Russian liberalism. To this it may be added that throughout his reign Nicholas II adhered to a sober and industrious standard of life. Here, indeed, the writers of the opposing schools begin to differ. That he was a man of comparatively simple and sober tastes, none disputes. His table was temperate and conspicuous for old Russian dishes. He spent his leisure in the domestic circle, playing dominoes or billiards in the metropolitan palaces, sharing walks or rides or sails with his family in the provinces. He opened every day with religious observances, had the family icons brought on voyages, and rigorously kept the fasts of the church. But his industry and attention to affairs are differently represented. Conservatives picture him a model of severe self-sacrifice. He worked, they say, without secretaries, ten or twelve hours every day. He minutely studied and annotated every document. He wore his pencil to the stump, the conservative pen records this with awed amazement, and then gave the stump gravely to his son. One imagines him relaxing from the cares of empire but for an hour in the evening. The revolutionary writers, however, depict him differently. They represent that he attended impatiently to serious affairs and spent an abnormal proportion of the day in the petty amusements of the domestic circle. The truth lies between the extremes. Nicholas II was industrious, and he attempted to discharge his functions very seriously within the limits of his narrow and mediocre conceptions. His people were not long in doubt as to the nature of his ideal. It was the ideal which each Romanov of the century had naively conceived afresh, a complete retention of the autocracy, coupled with a benevolent intention to help his people. On the day of his father's death, Nicholas issued a manifesto in which he promised to promote the progress and peaceful glory of his dear Russia and the happiness of his faithful subjects. To the deputies who came to congratulate him, he said that, as his foreign minister, M. de Guire, also assured foreign powers, he would maintain his father's policy. Plainly, the young emperor approached his task with the customary confidence of youth. He would avoid the error of his predecessors and, by wise moderation, disarm the malcontents and sustain a benevolent despotism. But Nicholas soon discovered that the last reign still survived in such power as to admit no new experiments. 
His mother, the dowager empress, was a harsh and arrogant woman, uniting to her political ignorance and incompetence a fierce resolution to have her husband's policy sustained. Nicholas's uncle, the Grand Dukes Sergius and Alexander, were of the same harshly despotic temper, and Pobiedonostsev, the head of the Holy Synod, was the enthusiastic supporter of their wishes. These four, with the reactionary ministers Pleve, Muraviev, and Benzobrazov, later Admiral Alexiev and others, whom they gradually discovered and promoted, formed what came to be known as the Immortal Seven, the caucus which led the dynasty to its destruction. Nicholas was not married at the time of his accession. It was not until November that he married Princess Alex of Hesse-Darmstadt, who entered the Orthodox Church and adopted the name of Alexandra Feodorovna. It is said that at the last moment the Dowager Empress took a violent dislike to her and enlivened the palace with lamentable exhibitions of her violent temper. It is at least clear that in the earlier years the Tsarina had no influence. Only in the last phase did she, by her pro-German leanings and her ignorant susceptibility to the intrigues of religious adventurers, contribute to the downfall of the monarchy. Nicholas was crowned at Moscow on May 26, 1895, and a terrible catastrophe clouded the very opening of his reign. Hundreds of thousands of peasants flocked to Moscow for the festivity and for the presents which were promised them, and they spent the night packed into the field of Kodinsky. A panic arose amongst them, and about a thousand of them, some say several thousand, were trodden underfoot or cast into the ditch and perished. It was a bad beginning, and the Tsar soon made matters worse. In July, nearly two hundred delegations brought to his palace the congratulations of every class of his people, and faint and respectful suggestions of reform were inserted in the bouquets of traditional compliment. From the province of Tver, especially, came a demand for liberal institutions, and the emperor received it with a smiling disdain which showed how little he understood his country. These were foolish dreams, he said. He would devote all his strength to the welfare of his country, but he would, with equal firmness, maintain the autocracy. A few reforms were introduced. Count de Witt fought his way to the head of the treasury and improved the finances. The immense flow of paper money was checked, and gold was accumulated at the banks or put into circulation. Ukases were passed which directed the building of model houses for the workers, and regulated to some extent their condition in the growing industries of Russia. New railways were built and canals projected. The army was partly reorganized, the administrative and judiciary institutions of the empire extended to Siberia, the development of which was energetically pushed. A measure to give separated married women the control of their property was passed, education was further enforced, though in this respect the reform was weakened or undone by the desperate efforts of the clergy to wrest the elementary schools from the Zemstvos. These reforms, however, like those of the preceding reigns, were trivial in comparisons with the mighty needs of Russia, and it was now felt by all but the incurable conservatives and the parasites of the autocracy 
that self-government through popular institutions was the first and essential condition of reform on this issue the dynasty or the misguided group who undertook to guide its fortunes staked its existence how far any of the reactionaries really believed that the autocracy was for the welfare of the russian people it is not our place to consider here the antagonistic forces moved slowly toward the field of battle with the general policy and personal adventures of nicholas the second i am not concerned the whole interest of the story is now concentrated in the growth of the conflict which will presently put an end to the romanovs it suffices to say that rasophilism and pan-slavism continued to act together and were equally responsible for the fall of the dynasty nicholas the second professed a humane dislike of the coercive policy of his father and in some respects in the early years the zeal of officials in persecuting dissenters was moderated but the facts of the entire reign are within the memory of my readers and their ghastly inconsistence with this humane profession need scarcely be emphasized never since the middle ages had the jews suffered so brutally at the hands of their christian masters unscrupulous officials and bodies of ignorant men like the black hundreds soon learned that massacre and pillage of the jews were looked upon with favour at the palace and the repeated pogroms are in themselves an indelible disgrace upon the name of nicholas the second the russianization of the poles for which russia pays heavily to-day and the lithuanians was maintained with all the earlier brutality and in regard to the Finns, Nicholas II incurred a peculiar stigma. He had at his accession sworn to respect the rights and the constitution of the Finns, but before long his officials tore up his oath and began to strip the vigorous little people of its nationality. Hardly a year of the Tsar's reign passed without some callous violation of his solemn promise, done with his express authority. The whole empire must, in spite of every obligation, be squeezed into the Russian mould. The only extenuating feature of this section of the Tsar's work that one can suggest is that the Russian people generally were in accord with this harsh and unjust procedure. The imperialistic tendency which led to this injustice equally shaped the disastrous foreign policy of Nicholas II there can be little doubt that the tsar desired a continuance of the peace which russia had enjoyed during his father's reign and for my part i am ready to recognize his sincerity in issuing a summons to a peace congress august twenty fourth eighteen ninety eight the aims of which nicholas defined in a personal letter january eleventh eighteen ninety nine it was as we now know germany which chiefly frustrated that well-meant effort the Tsar remained friendly with Germany, which then wavered between a Russian and an English Entente, while further strengthening his alliance with France. But the Tsar's desire of peace was, from the general practical point of view, rendered nugatory by his imperialistic policy. In the Balkans, he maintained that policy of secret and subtle infiltration which prepared the way for a conflict with Austria alexander the third had in effect retired from the balkans disgusted at the ingratitude of the principalities russia had helped to set up nicholas the second resumed the policy of disguised penetration 
and it is not too much to say that the southern slavs felt almost as much apprehension at the shadow of russia as at the encroachments of austria it was however the imperialist adventures in the far east which contained the gravest danger and were least respectable in principle it was entirely natural that russia should spread along its trans-siberian line develop its vast domains in asia and seek ice-free ports on the eastern coast this national ambition was however complicated by sordid speculations on the part of men and women who directly or indirectly had influence over the tsar revolutionary writers say that the dowager empress herself speculated heavily in asiatic properties and at least it may be regarded as certain that the grand dukes and adherents of the court sought fortune in that direction from siberia these cupidities reached out toward manchuria and korea and had large and vague designs upon helpless china russia so the formula ran was the heir of chinggis khan and timur it had a divine mission to impose its culture upon asia the very thin strain of tartar blood in the veins of russia was at length discovered to have some value the chino-japanese war occurred in the first year of the reign of nicholas the second and the rise of an asiatic power in the path of russian ambition caused a momentary concern japan must be promptly checked and at the close of the war russia bluntly refused to allow japan to occupy any of the territory it had seized germany astutely watched and fostered the dangerous adventure which diverted russia from europe to the far east under cover of its supposed protection of china russia then established itself in manchuria secured with money borrowed from france and england a financial hold on china and in eighteen ninety eight obtained a long lease of port arthur and talien wan the cold anger of the japanese at this piece of perfidy was little disguised and presently russia was requested to carry out its promise to evacuate manchuria from its new ports it was plain to all russia would spread to korea the other european powers now joined in the protest of japan and russia sought to gain time by long negotiations while it pressed the development of port arthur and dalny these devices japan in nineteen o four sternly cut short by making war the documentary evidence in regard to those aspects of the russo-japanese war which concern us here is in the same unsatisfactory condition as so much of the evidence on which we must rely in this chapter it awaits the impartial sifting of history the suppression of truth in russia throughout the reign of nicholas the second had the inevitable effect of provoking abroad a stream of something more than the truth writers and orators of revolutionary parties do not usually make calm and conscientious reflection on the statements they repeat and in every country of the world the russian writers found a large public eager to hear sensational stories about the court and the bureaucracy it is at present entirely impossible to select with any confidence the reliable statements from the mass of legends which were published in europe and america by the critics of the dynasty their fellows in russia were we shall see being butchered in thousands and were in tens of thousands suffering in agony which they often terminated by suicide and on the other hand 
many of the chief agents of this bloody system were undoubtedly corrupt adventurers or cynical egoists in the vast anti-romanov literature therefore we cannot look for judicious impartiality and if the reader misses from this chapter many a picturesque legend which he has read in the scorching pages of revolutionary writers he must not be surprised the history of that appalling reign is still to be written as far as the russo-japanese war is concerned we need not hesitate to admit three points the first is that the tsar if not some of his ministers sincerely believed that the little nation of the far east would never have the audacity to fight mighty russia and that germany encouraged the russian court in this view japan was bluffing the tsar was assured and he might pursue his eastern extension under cover of a hollow and dilatory diplomatic negotiation the second clear point is that this eastern extension of russia was very largely due to the corrupt and selfish ambitions of influential individuals stories about the investments of the dowager empress or the grand dukes or other persons of the tsar's circle may or may not be true there is fair evidence that a speculative fever penetrated the court in any case the divine mission of russia in the far east was as hollow a pretense as the divine mission of germany in the west in nineteen fourteen the third established point and the one of most importance for our purpose is that members of the imperial family and servants of the reactionary regime made vast sums of money by a corrupt diversion of goods and funds from the purposes of war to their private purses the knowledge of these facts came to thoughtful people in russia as the ignominious campaign dragged on from month to month public opinion startled by the success of what they had been taught to regard as a tribe of monkeys against their great army looked for hidden reasons of russia's failure and they were brought to light it was known that aristocratic officers gambled and rioted in the asiatic towns it was known that trained regiments of the regular army were kept at home to coerce russia while crowds of reservists were hurried out to meet the deadly japanese fire it was known that the large sums extorted from the people for the prosecution of the war were to a great extent diverted it was known that count de witt and count lambsdorff had tried to avert war and that manchurian affairs had then been entrusted to a favorite of the palace clique admiral alexiev before the war was half over the revolution was again aflame in russia and it grew daily we are told by writers who seem to have had the confidence of the revolutionaries that the complete suppression of overt criticism by alexander the third and his son had led to the formation of a new and very powerful secret movement it had branches in all parts of russia and it is said to have had as many as three million members in the year nineteen o four twelve men of distinguished ability directed its propaganda and many wealthy russians disgusted at or injured by the atrocious system which nicholas the second maintained devoted their whole fortunes to its work many of the stories told of its secret action are melodramatic and improbable but it cannot be doubted that a vast and well-organized movement existed not unlike the secret republican organization which was then being formed in portugal 
The Russian movement, however, was not definitely republican. It aimed at converting the Tsar, under pressure of his people, to constitutional views. It resented and despised the turbulent movements of the students and socialists, and it countenanced assassination only in very grave and carefully selected cases. We are told that its agents repeatedly placed on the Tsar's desk letters in which the situation was fully described, and Nicholas was urged to make peace with his people by granting a constitution and casting off the influence of the Dowager Empress. The early agitation was crushed with the customary brutality. One of the most repulsive adventurers of the time, Pleve, had become Minister of the Interior, and under his genial lead the police and magistrates fell upon every suspicion of revolt. Over the greater part of Russia the protection of civil law had been virtually suspended since 1881. Under what was called the Regulation for Reinforced Protection, suspects might be at any time arrested and imprisoned, journals suppressed, the civil courts entirely ignored. In the year 1903 nearly 400 men and women had been arrested under this barbarous system, and it was estimated that there were already more than 100,000 in the jails of Russia and in Siberia. The work had continued, however, and the revolutionaries boast that in the very year before the war, the year when they seemed to be feeblest, they circulated two million pamphlets among the Russian people. As the agitation grew with the war, Pleve retorted with increased savagery, and on July 28, 1904, he was, in spite of his extraordinary precautions, assassinated. The murderer, Sazonov, was sentenced only to twenty years' imprisonment, and Nicholas reduced this to fourteen years. The revolutionaries claim that they warned the Tsar that he answered with his life for the life of Sazonov. It was, at all events, made plain to the Tsar by the press of Europe that his system of ruling was regarded as barbarous. A more moderate man, or one who claimed at least to have some sympathy with liberalism, Prince Sviatopolk Mirsky, was put in charge of the Ministry of the Interior, and the struggle passed to a new phase. On November 19th, the police of St. Petersburg permitted a large meeting of members of the provincial Zemstvos, and a deputation of these was allowed to see Prince Mirsky. They demanded free parliamentary institutions and manhood suffrage, and the prince undertook to lay their demands before the Tsar. It is reported that the Dowager Empress, the Grand Dukes, and the reactionary ministers violently opposed any concession, and we must assume both that they would be consulted and they would give this advice. The Tsar was nervous and timorous, physically and mentally unequal to the great burden which now lay upon him. On December 12th he issued a ukase in which he promised reforms, but he described the demands of the representatives of the Zemstvos as inadmissible and inconsistent with the fundamental laws of the empire. The bulk of his people were, he said, true to the old foundations of the state organization, and he would protect them from the intrigues of agitators. The battle continued. A great meeting at St. Petersburg was addressed openly by writers and scholars of distinction, and amongst the crowd the cry, Down with the autocracy, was heard. 
Petitions and demands for representative institutions rained upon the Tsar from all classes of his subjects. Strikes and riots filled the daily press. On January 9th, the notorious father Gapon led 300,000 workers to the Winter Palace to lay their grievances before the little father, and before evening the snows of St. Petersburg were stained with the blood of thousands. There were spurts of revolt of Kichinev, Odessa, Moscow, and even Kronstadt. On February 4th, the Grand Duke Sergius, the most corrupt of the reactionaries, was assassinated. Prince Mirsky resigned and was succeeded by Bulygin. Before the new minister was established, the Tsar issued a new ukase affirming the autocratic principle, but Bulygin insisted that he should modify this act of mad defiance dictated by the palace clique by issuing on the same day a promise to convoke a consultative assembly of representatives of the people. He appointed a commission of inquiry, and in reply to a deputation from a second conference of the Zemstvos, he announced that a national assembly would soon be granted. The long-expected ukase appeared on May 10th. It opened on a note of repentance. A state cannot be solid until it holds as sacred the traditions of the past. We have failed in this, and God has punished us. The sovereignty of ancient Russia was indissolubly bound up with the voice of the land, with the representatives of the people assembled in council. For the first time the Romanovs perceived that, centuries before their dynasty was cradled, Russia had had a past, and a democratic past. But the project of the new assembly, the first Duma, turned this avowal into derision. The business of the representatives of the people was merely to examine proposals which would be laid before the imperial council. The Tsar alone could initiate and pass legislation. By further regulations, in fact, the members of the Duma were put at the mercy of the conservative senate. The autocracy was maintained in all its medievalism. Liberals and radicals now united in a fierce demand of reform. Russia was paralyzed by a general strike and the suspension of traffic. More than a million workers were on strike. In a momentary panic, the Tsar directed Count de Witt to draw up a list of reforms, and on October 30, 1905, he issued the famous ukase which has since given a name to the vast body of moderate Russian reforms, the Octoberists. He would grant manhood suffrage, real national representation, freedom of speech and religion, and so on. As usual, the first breath of liberty let loose a passion of discussion. The radicals and the independents united to form the powerful body of the constitutional democrats, the cadets or KDs. A council of labor deputies was formed with the express purpose of holding the supreme power when the Tsar had been deposed. In brief, Russia was seen aflame with revolution. There were mutinies in the fleet at Kronstadt and at Sevastopol, and the audacity of the more radical elements led, at Moscow, to the futile and pathetic rebellion in which large numbers of students lost their lives. The revolution was premature. The troops were unprepared for revolt on such an issue as the constitution, and the black bands everywhere aided the police and dipped their hands in the blood of Jews and radicals. The active rebellion was truculently suppressed, 
and the jails were packed to suffocation. His reactionary advisers urged the triumphant Tsar to refuse all concessions, but the rumble of the more moderate malcontents was still heard on every side, and the promise of some sort of national assembly had to be carried out. It was in these circumstances that, on May 10, 1906, Nicholas opened the first Duma. The name had been invented by the reforming minister of Alexander I, Speransky, and it represented the measure of popular representation which might have been regarded as satisfactory in those semi-feudal days. For a civilization of the twentieth century it was ridiculously inadequate, and it soon proved only a channel for the comparatively safe release of the boiling sentiment which filled the country. Before the Romanov dynasty fell, it was customary for polite journalists and essayists to explain that the excesses of the radicals frustrated the work of the new institution. It is unhappily true that the left wing of every reform movement uses a rhetoric which is little in accord with its loud insistence on justice, but in this case even the work of moderate members of the Duma was obnoxious to the authorities. Day by day the state of the Russian jails, the gross conduct of police and military authorities, and the barbarous practices of their subordinates were brought to light. Week by week men waited, and waited in vain, for the further installments of reform which had been promised. The Duma grew more and more vehement in its attacks upon the government. The cadets formed the majority of its members, and they formulated their demands for adult suffrage, real parliamentary institutions, the abolition of capital punishment, a political amnesty, the suppression of the imperial council, and the expropriation of the large landowners. Goremikin, a tool of the palace clique which had put him in the place of Count de Witt, refused to comply, and on July 23rd the Tsar dissolved the Duma. The measure was a failure, and Goremikin had to surrender his place to Stolypin. The ejected cadets retired to Finland and appealed to the people to refuse to pay taxes or render military service, for which, three years later, they were condemned to imprisonment and the loss of their civil rights. Stolypin had the ingenious idea of severing the great mass of the peasants from the radicals by separate concessions, and in October and November the Tsar appealed for their support. They were put on the same footing as other classes in regard to the right of entering the public service or schools, the issue of passports, and in rural elections. They were released from obligatory residence in the district in which they were registered, permitted to take away their share of the communal property, and protected from punishment without trial. By these means, and by tempering with the electoral law, which he dare not yet alter, Stolypin secured a second Duma, in which the cadets were greatly reduced. Instead of 185 seats, they now had only 108. But they still formed the largest party, and their leader Golovkin was president of the Duma. In face of their demands, the Tsar authorized Stolypin to offer the crown lands and imperial estates to be shared amongst the peasants, but the radicals were not appeased, and on June 14th, Three months after the opening of the Duma, Stolypin demanded a secret session in order to consider an indictment of the Social Democrats, 
whose number had increased to seventy-seven at the last election. Almost the whole of them were charged with complicity in a plot to undermine the loyalty of the army and navy. The Duma was still overwhelmingly radical, a sufficient commentary on the Tsar's claim that the mass of his people clung to the old traditions, and refused to lend itself to this manoeuvre. Two days later, June 16th, Nicholas again asserted his power and dissolved the second Duma. It was, he declared, not representative of the Russian spirit, and would not support his government in suppressing disorder. To make it more representative of this Russian spirit, which was supposed to animate the bulk of the population, he narrowed the electoral qualifications, in violation of his 1905 UKs, and reduced the membership from 524 to 442. The cadets now sank from 108 to 45, the socialists from 77 to 17. The conservatives rose from 60 to 100, and the Octoberists from 31 to 110. Liberalism, of one shade or another, still greatly outweighed conservatism, even in this mangled representation of the Russian people, and assassinations, strikes, and fiery rhetoric impressed upon Europe the grievances of those who were excluded from representation. In the year 1907 there were 627 executions, and about 70,000 were sent into exile. In 1908 there were 786 executions, and the number of exiles rose to 180,000. The populations of the jails of Russia rose from 91,000 in the year 1904 to 174,000 in the year 1910. This was the comparative tranquillity which the chroniclers of Russian events ascribe to the country between 1907 and 1917. Quarterly notices of the number of political executions were put into small type in English and American journals, and from the sombre silence that brooded over the land there issued at times the lurid message of assassination. In 1909 occurred the astounding revelation of the secret police spy and professed socialist Atsev, and it became known that outrages were instigated by the police in order to strengthen their system. The former head of the police had to be sentenced to five years' imprisonment. The head of the secret police of St. Petersburg was assassinated. In 1911, Stolypin was permitted by the Tsar to suspend the Imperial Council and the Duma, so that he could avail himself of the clause of the Constitution which enabled him to pass laws while the councils were not sitting. And on September 14th, while Nicholas sat in his box in the opera at Kiev, he had the horror of witnessing the murder of his complacent minister. Still he clung to his poor rags of autocracy. Still religious adventurers and spiritist mediums plied their lucrative charlatanry in the palaces. Still the flower of the young generation rotted in the overcrowded jails or languished in Siberia. The jails had a maximum accommodation for 107,000 prisoners, and in 1910 about 180,000 men and women were crowded into them. Typhus flourished in them. Suicides of prisoners rose to 160 in a single month. The most brutal outrages were committed on young women and men. These facts one learned, as I experienced at the time, 
by a laborious comparison of the statements of little red writers and statistics to the world at large a different picture was offered men were told how in nineteen o six a group of affrighted polish peasants headed by an abbess came to st petersburg to inquire if it was really true that as zealous roman catholic proselytizers had told them the tsar had made his submission to the pope they saw a minister on easter morn and to their solemn salutation christ is risen he blunderingly replied good day and their hearts sank but they also saw nicholas and to their faltering religious salute he replied cheerfully in truth he is risen and they fell sobbing at his feet or it was the festival of poltava in nineteen o nine when nicholas seeing his carriage surrounded by a dense throng of peasants alighted and talked familiarly with them for two hours and there was the story of how at christmas nineteen twelve when the members of the duma were presented to him he summoned the shrinking peasant deputies from the last row and honoured them above the others nicholas the second knew quite well what was happening in russia his small mind thought that tasting the food of soldiers and sailors before a camera visiting the hospitals and embracing carefully selected peasants would save the autocracy in the twentieth century the five-year period of the third duma expired in nineteen twelve and the new election proved a victory for the conservatives the octoberists had ventured to resist the demand of the clergy that the elementary schools should be handed over to them and the popes had fiercely and unscrupulously canvassed the peasant electors still however two hundred eighty five octoberists and other radicals faced the one hundred fifty five members of the right and small measures of reform had to be passed they were inadequate and the year nineteen thirteen saw another great wave of disturbance the number of strikers rose to 460,000. At Kiev, a great gathering of representatives of all the towns of the empire condemned the government. The Octoberists united with the other radicals of the Duma, and, by 146 votes to 113, many abstaining, condemned the ministers for not proceeding in the path of reform. But I need not run in detail over events which are still fresh in the general memory. These brief notices will suffice to indicate that the spirit of progress lived and grew, in spite of every effort of Nicholas II to strangle it. The conflict entered upon its last stage. That Nicholas II wanted war, however much he may have hoped to profit by the aid of France and England, we have no reason whatever to believe nor is it possible as yet to pass a sober opinion upon the charge that he intended when the war dragged to make a separate peace with germany that his german wife was won by the miserable adventurer rasputin and some of his ministers by german bribery seems clear enough and although he had been second only to the kaiser in the vigorous lead of his nation until the end of nineteen sixteen there is grave reason to think that he was then won by the prayers of his family and intrigues of his ministers but the russian revolution was not based on this theory as much as is generally believed the mass of the people were bewildered by the war and have not since shown any great zeal to prosecute it 
the educated malcontents were as we saw thoroughly organized and ready to grasp any pretext for a successful revolution only a minority of military men and liberal politicians were essentially moved by the failure of the dynasty to arm russia efficiently and prosecute the war the food supply was the immediate ground of the revolution on february eighth when the five-year period of the duma of 1912 approached its term the tsar was urged to extend its life as was done in other countries the tsar refused and he spoke of elections in the coming fall the suspicion that he was going to proceed irregularly coincided with a shortage of grain in the large cities especially petrograd as the capital was now named which was gradually stirring the anger of the people we may assume that the revolutionary organization exploited this anger with all their power and especially undermined the loyalty of the few regiments which were left at petrograd on march eighth the people of petrograd especially the women began to throng the streets and the workers to quit the factories rodzianko the president of the duma summoned a conference on the food question and he and professor milyukov the second hero of the revolution strongly criticized the incompetence of the ministers rodzianko a former officer of the guards and husband of a golitsyn princess was a noble of distinction but he was an octoberist and a friend of the people the crowds were still larger in the streets on march ninth and on sunday the eleventh they turned out in immense numbers and fraternized with the few troops who were visible the guards however were imperfectly won and on the sunday afternoon they fired a volley into the crowd and about a hundred were killed or wounded it is one of the strangest testimonies to the amazing condition of russia that the crowds remained on the streets and said sympathetically to the soldiers we are sorry for you brothers you had to do your duty on the monday morning it became known that the tsar had suspended for two months the sittings of the duma and the imperial council and the revolution was inaugurated troops to the number of about thirty thousand marched upon the arsenal distributed arms to the people and fought the police and the loyal troops the progressives and the socialists formed a committee of twelve of their ablest representatives including rodzianko milyukov and kerensky and the rodzianko telegraphed to the tsar a peremptory demand for a new government the fight with the police who mounted the roofs with rifles and machine-guns was continued on the following day but the public buildings fell one by one into the hands of the revolutionaries and about midnight of the thirteenth to fourteenth the enterprise was crowned by the submission to the provisional government of the preobrayensky guards moscow soon sent its adhesion and the troops in the field gradually assured the new government of their allegiance nicholas the second was with the army at the headquarters of general ruski when the alarming news from petrograd reached him he would return to the capital he said but at Bolgoe station he was quietly persuaded to return to Skov. There, in a small, dimly-lighted room, the last of the Romanovs received the delegates of the people, M. Guchkov and a conservative member of the Duma. It is said that Nicholas asked calmly what was required of him, and, when he was told that he must abdicate, he at once demanded a piece of paper. 
He would not, however, resign the crown to his son, as they wished. He would not be parted from his son, he said, and it is probable that he was moved by his deep affection for the boy. He would leave the throne to his brother Michael. The fateful document was there and then composed, and Nicholas II signed away his power, signed, as it proved, the death warrant of the Romanov dynasty. He remains ambiguous in his last imperial pronouncement. In words of singular dignity and detachment, he answers the call of the Russian people to lay down his autocracy, and he prays for a speedy victory over Germany. But for the ghastly, unforgettable horrors which stain his reign, we could find words of admiration for the last weak descendant of Michael Romanov. End of section 19 End of The Romance of the Romanovs by Joseph Martin McCabe